Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and I have some good news and some bad news. The good news is my fellow commenter, Cameron Brooks, is back from his grad school residency and ready to tell us about it. The bad news is, thanks to a sound booth mishap, we managed to record our conversation on the wrong mic, which means the audio quality in this episode takes a bit of a nosedive. Still, the content is good, so we want to share it with you, hoping that you'll have ears to hear. The question we're going to explore after Cameron's experience is the role of mysticism in the Christian faith. For those of us with an interest in systematic theology with careful doctrinal formulations, there is often some skepticism towards anything or anyone embracing the mystical label. Is that skepticism misplaced? Or are we in danger of missing something vital if we take too dismissive a stance? That's what we're going to ask in this episode. Well, Cameron is back after a couple of weeks away. Cameron is back in the studio. We join us for the commentary. And I've been looking forward to this, Cameron, because I'd like to spend a little bit of time debriefing your experience and maybe pursuing some of the uh, thoughts that you've been having. But, but before we do that, let's bring everybody up to speed on exactly where it is you've been. Yes, yes. Well, great to be back, Mark, and all of you listening. Um, I hope you haven't missed my voice too much. But yeah, so I'm going through the MFA in Creative Writing program at Seattle Pacific University. And it's a low residency program, which means that students fly out to Seattle twice a year for 10-day intensive residencies. And that's where I was. So I was out in Seattle for the first time, by the way. So there was a lot of cool exploring that, that I did. In, in fact, Jenny, my wife, was out there with me, too, for some of it. So we, you know, we did all the, the typical stuff, the Space Needle, the ferries, and the, the market. But it is, a, it is a really cool town. Have you been out there? Yes, many times. And I know that you probably had thoughts about relocating to the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> I did. Perfect it would be. Temptations so, might be more accurate. Let me assure you that summer in Seattle is atypical. That it's not the way it, it usually is when people talk about you know the gray and rainy Pacific Northwest. You don't experience that when you're there in the summer, and I'm usually there in the summer, so I have exactly that that image of what it's like. But yeah, banish the thought. You're, you're perfect where you are here, and you can experience Seattle in these residencies. But I'm guessing that not a lot of people listening are familiar with the way a master in fine arts and creative writing works. Um, so when you're doing these intensives, are these like workshops, lectures, like what, what kind of stuff is happening in the program while you're there in person? Yeah, I, th- I think there are maybe three or four main components. The first is workshops, like you mentioned. So before the residency, I submitted some of my poems, some new poems to my cohort of students and my mentor. 
and I received theirs as well. So we showed up and every day, pretty much, we'd get together and just hash through each other's work, which was a very wonderful experience, frankly. And just so, I think that's the most beneficial thing for me is to hear the perspective of others on my creative work. But then there's also lectures and in particular, Something unique, I think, at SVU is they have these art and faith lectures where they bring in a guest speaker to work through a text or two. And this time, they brought in a, a man named Mark Burroughs, who's a historian, I, I believe, a, a historical theologian of sorts. And he went to Princeton, so we connected over that. But he walked us through Meister Eckhart, a German mystic theologian, from, I think, the 13th century, and Rainer Maria Rilke, a German poet, though I, uh, I think Austrian, perhaps. Mm. He told me, don't, don't call him the German poet, <laughs> something like that. But two really important figures in, from, from that area of the world, from Germany, and very different, though, at the same time. So he, he walked us through two of their texts, and it was, yeah, it was kind of like lectures and a little bit of time for, for Q&A. There were also craft speakers, so there are different genres within the program, as you know. I'm a, a poetry student, but we also have fiction and creative nonfiction, and actually young adult fiction, which is actually fading out of the program right now, but they had some, some speakers there for that. So they brought in, essentially, writers who are doing doing the writing life to talk about craft for each mm -hmm. of the genres. And we sit through all of those different genres, which I, I find really fruitful. I will probably never write a novel, but it's really fun to listen to people talk about how to do it. Yeah. And, and I think it informs, you know, it does in some ways inform the way I think about my poetry too. Did you have an experience like that where it was like multidisciplinary? Yes. Probably not to that extent, but even you know, the, the whole pedagogy of writing relies on a lot of analogy. And so I, I feel like you're constantly being immersed in other disciplines. I had a professor who was a cellist, and so he was always using the cello and, and music as the analogy to explain something and how to write, because, um, you know, there's just not a lot of, uh, like, how to write straight on instruction. You've always got to kind of adapt it from somewhere else. And you know, in literature, they, they would do that a lot with, uh, you'd write about painters or something something concrete and tangible, and then use it more symbolically. So in my program, you did have to take classes in other tracks. So I had to take, we had fiction and poetry. This was before creative nonfiction really became anything. We had a class in essay writing, as we naively thought of it <laughs> back then, and, and uh I did take that and loved it, but but we were required as fiction writers, which is the track I was in, to take a certain number of classes in poetry. And so I had a poetry workshop, which I found hugely intimidating because I was in a classroom. Uh, Adam Zagievsky taught it, and, mm. and it was full of like the the fantastic poetry students. But I still had to bring my own work and have it discussed, and it was it was searing. Like you talk about having a wonderful workshop experience. For me, it was a nightmare of humiliation 
every time I brought one of my sad, pathetic little poems <laughs> into the classroom. Although Adam was extraordinarily gracious, and, and no one was was uh, harder on me than than I was on myself. But but yes, we had a certain amount of that. And I, I think it's I think it's really good because writers oftentimes find themselves switching hats. You know, and you say you'll never write a novel, but you know, you may find yourself at some point you already do essays and, and some creative nonfiction and, and so you know, you're not, it's not too far from think pieces to fiction. So you never know. That could come in handy. Have you written any poems since you graduated? <laughs> uh, occasionally I will get something in my head and uh, and write it and uh, I'm never, I'm never happy with the outcome. I will say I'm, I'm always convinced they're works of genius. Oh yeah, but no one ever responds that way. Like no one ever says, "Wow, you really missed your calling." Everyone just kind of looks at them and they're like, "I don't know what that means, but you should stick with what you know." Right. But uh, but yeah. So I'm I'm curious about. You mentioned the, the Rilke and Meister Eckhart, and so we've got two German language poets, very different in, in, in the timeline. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I loved about my grad school experience was being introduced to writers of the past and literary movements, and also, I guess we might say, like the minds of the past, you know, the, the perspectives that, that shaped those works. I think, especially. When you're thinking of that intersection of art and faith, that's a really interesting one because I'm not an expert on Meister Eckhart. You know, you know the name, and and uh, I, I'm sure I've I've looked at his writings maybe in brief, but I can't even say I've read anything you know to completion. So vaguest idea of of what Meister Eckhart is all about. But just on the face of it, when I think of sort of medieval mysticism, I can see why that might be of interest to poets. Because you think of mysticism, and I think poetic expression is oftentimes maybe the the kind of literary mode that lends itself most to that sort of thinking. Yeah, I'm curious if you could if you could say more. First, I'm curious. How would you define mysticism <laughs> at all? You know? Great question. Um, so I okay. So I should acknowledge that I I define it a little bit skeptically, right? That I, that I'm not mystical by nature, but I'm also fascinated by mystery, right? And and I believe that, um, well, Herman Bavink, the opening line of of uh, the doctrine of God, mystery is the vital element of dogmatics. I believe mm. that deeply, vital in the sense of essential, but in the sense of um, life-giving. Mm. But having said that, I'm probably on the end of the spectrum that's like, before we get into the mystery, let's fully come to terms with what is revealed. Sure. You know, let's, let's sort of know what we know before we reflect on what we don't know. The problem for, for people with my kind of orientation, though, is you can easily get kind of caught in a loop where you're never really confronting what 
what is not known or cannot be known, but can still be reflected on and meditated on. And so when I think of mysticism, generally speaking, I think of it as, as an attempt to come to terms with the limits of maybe not knowledge, but, but of certain knowledge or, or reliable knowledge, let's say. I think mysticism is an attempt at knowing things. So it's not about going beyond knowledge entirely, but it is it is about sort of going into the space where certain things are going to remain unknowable, despite you know whatever amount of time we we spend thinking of them. So one thing I want to carve out of that though is can we make a distinction between let, let's call it objectivity and subjectivity? That I think for again for people like me, one of the common objections or knee jerk reactions to the idea of mysticism in general is that it's it's a sort of navel-gazing exercise in subjectivity, right? That a, a mystic is a person so self-absorbed um, that they are not paying attention to like, the reality that's all around them, something like that. And I think that that is a deeply unfair characterization that also strongly resonates with me personally. If, if, if I can put it that way, that, that I totally get why people think that way. I've thought that way as well, but I don't think it's, it, I think it's, it's a way of dismissing something out of hand, not really coming to terms with what, what it's about. So I, I don't even know if that's even close to a definition. That's my thoughts yeah, anyway. Yeah. Well, no, it's, it's helpful. To, I, I think you're right on. And there's a lot about Eckhart that, that I don't know. There's a lot about Eckhart that we don't have time to talk about. Sure. And there were some things that I really liked about him. But yes, I do think that one thing he had in common with, with Rilke and frankly with just the, kind of the ethos of the program that I was experiencing was that an element of mysticism or approaching the limit of your knowledge and and being open to the being open to the fact that there's more out there you know it's it's a very general sense of of knowing that you're limited first off you know you're finite and human amen to that but em embracing that and and Rilke so Rilke talked a lot about the, like the blessing of darkness, which is a very strange thing, but a, kind of a mystical idea too, that you, you go into the darkness metaphysically and, or uh, you know, metaphorically and literally, and in the darkness and in the solitude and the quiet, you find yourself or you find God. And I, I think that's, that's kind of the mystical thing too, where, so Eckhart was a Neoplatonist, and not to get too you know distracted here, but but the Neoplatonists had this idea of the ascent of the soul to God. And Augustine talked about this a lot too, where you know, God created us and we fell and Jesus came to, to bring us back to God. We can say yes and amen. But the, you know, the, the Neoplatonists had this way of thinking about it where the world is all kind of distracting us from the one who's God or whatever. And the goal of life is essentially to rid yourself of your attachments 
to physical things, to temporal things, and to ascend, ascend back to God through contemplation. Mm-hmm. And and Eckhart is basically there. And and I think that's maybe one of the issues I have with mysticism is that it seems, like you said, it seems to be detached from lived reality. And it seems, it's navel-gazing in the sense that it's just me and my ascent. But what about my neighbor? You know, what what about the others around me? So, so that's that's one thing. I, I don't know any thoughts. Well, okay. So, we've talked a few times on the commentary about prayer, and it seems to me that that the way that you're describing mysticism is a way that a lot of people today would also describe prayer, right? That that prayer is a kind of self-absorption that prevents you from doing practical things in the world. Instead of praying for me, why don't you actually help me? Why don't you change the situation instead of just praying about it? And so uh, I, th- I think that, again, you know, that resonates, but, but maybe part of why it resonates is that we are products of our culture and the, the aspects of, of, let's say, Christian theology, which ring most true to us sometimes, are the ones that sort of connect with people like us now and the ones that we struggle with are the ones that don't really have a sort of landing place in our psyche in the same way. So think about it this way. Um, We can talk about salvation in terms of what we're saved from and also what we're saved for. Right. And, And I think in Presbyterian circles, you can even congratulate yourself that we spend time talking about salvation for, not just salvation from, you know, that it's not all about uh, repairing the damage of sin and avoiding the consequences of sin. It's also about the restored relation. It's about um, knowing God fully, even as I haven't fully known. It's about the new creation. But when you think about eschatology, there's an aspect of eschatology that I think we find more encouraging or profitable than another type. So the the type that can be really good for us is what we think in terms of recreation and we think in terms of like the idea of our human purpose restored to us and now being fulfilled and living before the presence of God, but but in this sort of almost Eden as it was meant to be kind of city. But there's also a sense where that city is the city in the presence of God, where there's no longer a sun because his presence illuminates everything. That seems to speak to a a knowledge of God for its own sake. And so something that that, uh, in theology we talk about is the beatific vision. So an aspiration to the beatific vision, to me, is something much more uh, natural to a mystical way of thinking and an orientation towards the practicality of new creation might be, you know, something that, that lands more easily in, in a um, good Protestant sensibility. But, but what if both of those things <laughs> and one besides are part of the same thing, yeah. you know, and that, that uh, in the same way that, that we have to recover a sense of the purpose and value of prayer, not as a means to an end, not to get stuff from God, but as a way of communing with him, that this idea of contemplating God and who he is in order to know him more deeply is not 
is not as weird an idea, um, or it's not as mystical an idea, uh, and certainly not alien to scripture as, as we can sometimes think that it is. It's just a different thread, a strand that, that um, we maybe haven't been as, as good at recovering. Yeah, you know, it was honestly one of the, the aspects of the week that I, I struggled with the most in the moment and then found myself most grateful for on the plane ride home. I spent seven hours in the Denver airport <laughs> thinking about some of this stuff. And yeah, you know, like you just said, in Presbyterian circles and other other Protestant denominations, perhaps there's, there's a heavy influence on theology and what we can know about God. And I, I love that. I think that's that's awesome. But what this week reminded me is that is that there is always more to God. And because God, you know, we've always Christians have always said that God is eternal, which means that like a finite person like me will never know him completely. And that's part of the joy of of new creation and the beatific vision is that it's this eternal coming to know God more and more and more and, and being transformed into his image. That's fantastic, you know, and I, and I think that we can apply it too to our, our theology. Sometimes we get so concerned with just getting our, the, the things that we know right, and that's really, really important, but maybe there's more there too. And I, and I think I can say maybe there's more there too, because the New Testament talks about Christianity as an active relationship with God through the Spirit. It's ongoing. It's not static and dead, a thing of the past, just reciting you know, old creeds. But it, it's ongoing, and God, God is, is working. So I just find that really exciting, that I, I can have my cake and eat it too. I can have yes. my, my doctrines. You know, I love that. I love, I love theology and studying all of that, and acknowledging that, that maybe there's, there's something more. So... I, I what if? Yeah. What if? It's not. It's not even that we can have our cake and eat it too, but that in in some sense we need one in order to be able to experience the other. And to me, this is kind of the tragedy because what I see a lot of is in sort of let's say like theologically rigorous but not very creative circles. There's an emphasis on the doctrine and not the mystery. And in more creative, but not very theologically intense circles, there's the opposite, right? The emphasis on the mystery, not so much on the doctrine. And I think, you know, we talked about this in an earlier episode when we talked about Jeremy Bagby's book, Peculiar Orthodoxy, because he makes a similar case here. But that, that emphasis on what we do know and, and being rigorous in the pursuit of what is revealed is, I think, the quickest way to the frontiers of our knowledge. All too often what happens is if, if your sort of personality is bent more towards the mystical, then the message you get is something like, forget about all this stuff we know. Think about what we don't know and can't know. Mm. And the other way around, if you've got a more practical bent, it's like, don't worry about the mystery stuff, just focus on, on what we can say for certain. And really, I, I'd like to, to see us 
acknowledge both of those realities, right? That the the doctrinal formulas are are good and valuable and true as far as they go, but are not exhaustive. Certainly don't say all that there is to say and do not express all that there is to express. Um, I actually learned this sitting at the feet of a great contemporary Christian mystic, Carl Truman, (laughs) an OPC pastor not known for his mysticism, but in a lecture he was giving, he was distinguishing between uh, the archetype and the ectype. So the archetype of, let's say, a, a piece of knowledge is sort of the exemplary perfect version of it. The ectype is the derivative copy of it. Um, the application that he was making was to draw a distinction between, let's say, God as he is and God as he is described in our theological formulations. And, and acknowledging how much distance there is between those two, that, that archetype and, and these, you know, ectypical uh, derivative statements. You even find this in, again, a, another not very mystical theologian, Cornelius Van Til, who talks about human knowledge as you know, finite replication, he talks about uh, the limits of that knowledge not as a way of discouraging us from uh, clinging to what is revealed, but as a way of acknowledging that, that, you know, what is revealed is the tip of an iceberg. And you need to know what's under the surface because it, 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 it puts you in the proper frame of mind, right? Like it, it's, I think that, that being able to say what we can say with certainty about God, being able to say those things, being able to, to you know, say the creeds and believe them and mean them is very important, but it's also important to be able to say them and know them and mean them and realize there is much more to him than this. Yeah. Right? That... that this says true and valuable, beautiful, inexpressibly, you know, inexpressibly comprehensive things. And yet there's even more to him than this. You know, and I, th- I think that to me is the, the proper orientation of these things. So, yeah, so mysticism as a way of, of kind of getting around knowledge or, or dismissing knowledge or sort of being against what is revealed is I think not not truly a pursuit of the mystery, but at the same time, taking the the theological formulations as exhaustive, so that you can pretend the mystery isn't there, is another way of missing the reality of God, right? That that uh, it's another it's a way of making him small. You know, and maybe both of those omissions are that, that on the one hand we, we make him small by by saying you know these five sentences express all that, that is you know, needful to say about God, but on the other saying well there's nothing that we can really say about God with any sort of precision. You know, both of these are ways in a sense to deny something about him. Yeah, that's that's helpful. I kept. Thinking of um, 
that scene in the last battle, CS Lewis's mm-hmm. the last battle at the end. It's the conclusion of the whole Chronicles of Narnia where it's kind of a new creation scene and it's sort of <laughs> for lack of a better word, a mystical experience of, you know, these characters and the animals, they're all just like running at the end. And I'm I'm forgetting some of the details, but but this it's where the quote further up, further in comes from, which a lot of people use, you know, further up, further in. And and the characters keep yelling that to themselves and they're like running into this new creation and it just keeps going and unfolding in the mountains, you know, like unfolding. And that that's what it what it is to me, is is growing in knowledge just reminds us that there's always another mountain. There's an, there's always another vista, another horizon that crops up and, and suddenly we realize, oh, we don't have it all figured out. So you go chase that one and then there's another and, and another and another. And it is this adventure of further up, further in, not resisting knowledge, but embracing, you know, everything that God has revealed, not trying to know things that he hasn't revealed, not trying to speculate, but embracing everything God has revealed and, and realizing that there's so much more there's an abundance of things to know, and and that it's, I think it's partly what it means to be human is to, to see those things, to embrace them, to know them as much as we can, you know, and to, and to keep, running, keep running. Yeah, and I think that's, it's a good sort of full circle back to where we started with literature, because I, I think one of the things that, whether we're talking about poetry or fiction, one of the things that the artistic mediums do is give us a, a, a greater awareness of what we might think of as like the everyday mysteries. You know, there's a, a consciousness of life and perception that we discover in literature that we wouldn't get through other means that awaken us to, kind of, I don't know, these, these sensitivities towards life and the bigger questions in life and, and the meaning of things that, that um, we wouldn't otherwise reflect on or find meaning in. And so I'm reluctant to, I don't know, to, to, to throw all of that very human part of experience out on, on any point. I instead want to find a way to, to lean into it. In fact, this summer, although it was not part of any sort of course of study, I did embark on a little bit of mystical reading of my own. Um, there's a, a medieval, um, I, I believe the author is anonymous, but but a kind of famous mystical text called The Cloud of Unknowing. Have you, have you come across that? Yeah. So I, I found a, a beautiful, pristine old copy of The Cloud of Unknowing. And, and I know nothing about the book uh, at the point that I'm purchasing it, uh, which is appropriate, right? It's called Unknowing in the title. So, uh, and I just was fascinated, and I've always loved that title and thought, oh, this would be a great title for something. And, and so I got it and kind of started just reading through the introduction and reading through right, a few pages. And of course, I was quickly sort of, what did I just read? <laughs> that could have been an out of my depth, but, but it is a it is an interest of mine as well that that, that um, not a strong point, but something I, I see a lot of value in and reflecting on. So um, I don't know if you plan on reading more Meister Eckhart, but if you 
dig in, you can maybe share some reflections with us over time. Yeah, yeah, I will. I agree with you. I don't, I don't want to come off as, as sounding like I'm too opposed sure. to, you know, to mysticism. I think there's room for it in any tradition, you know, even a reformed tradition like ours. And I guess I just want to surround it with a yeah. little bit of, give a little bit of doctrinal shape to it. And then, and then yeah, I think, right. I, I think the wariness, like the legitimate wariness for, for an idea like this, and, and you know, it's not the only one, but but is where we use words like this <clears throat> to do um, some other kind of duty, right? To sneak other things in. So, you know, extreme example, but if if I come along and say to you, I'm receiving new revelation from the Holy Spirit, and you should receive this as this new yeah. voice from God, and then you challenge me on it and start quoting Westminster Confession, and I say, look, I'm a mystic. <laughs> you know, that's the sort of thing I think we rightly on guard against, right? Rightly skeptical of. But it's not the same thing as what we've been talking about here. And so I think maybe that's a good distinction for listeners as well, so that we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. There are things to be on guard against. Um, in the same way that I don't take people's claims to be, you know, confessional at face value if what they're actually advocating for is not in the confession. Uh, I don't take everyone's claim to be mystic uh, as, you know, the final word on, on how to think about what they're doing. All that just to say there needs to be a, a, a place in our thinking for the real mystery of who God is, the mystery of godliness that we find throughout scripture. And, and we should probably be quick to acknowledge the vastness of who he is in comparison to you know, our descriptions of him and, and always quick to distinguish. Thanks for listening to the commentary. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to the commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsufalls.org.